Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I'm Assistant Director at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I am joined, as always, by Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, what is up? You know, the sun is shining slightly today, but then it's also rainy, so we're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's kind of this time in a nutshell. For every little bit of shine, there's also some rain. Uh <laughs> We are thinking about Grateful Dead on our sort of work chat the other day. And so for every silver lining has its touch of gray, and that seems to be where we are right now. Uh, but you're holding up okay, given quarantines and social distancing and what have you? Yeah, you know, being someone who likes to be by themselves pretty often anyway, you do all right with that. <laughs> yeah, it really probably reminds you of growing up in Canada, where you had to go days without seeing people just because of how big the country is and remote. Yes, that's absolutely 100% correct, and I appreciate the Canada reference. I just thought I'd get it done with quick. Okay, uh, so one thing that's become really obvious, I think, to us uh, as we're still under uh, quarantine is microscopic organisms and tiny things, like, they matter a lot, even though we can't see them. Right now, you know, the entire global economy is being dictated by a virus, Right. Uh, and, and so we thought this would be a good time to focus on tiny things, but maybe not viral things, because there's a lot of virus going on right there, and try to learn uh, about the role of microbes in the Great Lakes. And fortunately, you knew somebody who could help, right? Right, I did. Yeah. So um, we actually did a series of workshops from the time I started with Sea Grant back in around 2010. We had done a series of workshops and at every single one of them, there would be this group of people saying, we need to know about the base of the food web. The microbes really matter. And I can remember people talking about like, how do we get people to care about microbes? Because people care about salmon. They want to eat the salmon. They want to catch the salmon. But um I believe there was a comment about like making placards and like, yay, save the microbes. So um, a couple of years back, we ran a competition uh, with Michigan Sea Grant. And through that competition, we specifically tried to fund some work on the lower food web. And Dr. Rachel Peretsky was one of the people who was successful in that competition. Great. Well, uh, let's go ahead and bring on uh, Rachel right after uh, I'll go with jazzy guitar theme. Great. And our guest today is Dr. Rachel Peretsky, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences, Sciences excuse me, at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She settles my, studies microbial ecology, biogeochemistry, bacterial diversity and community structure and interactions in natural environments. That's a lot to study and a lot of words that I kind of know, but don't actually know. Rachel, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? <laughs> Picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue, but that's okay. Uh, so let's start with sort of uh, uh, definitions, right? We're going to talk about microbes or microorganisms. What is, are those the same thing? Are they different things? I don't even actually know. Totally the same thing. I, okay. I feel like microbe is a little bit more colloquial, so we can say uh, my email address is actually microbe. Um, microbe is um, another word for microorganism, just means okay. something that's really, really tiny. Okay. Well, we'll go with microbe because I'm a man of the people, if nothing else. And and so these are found everywhere, right? I mean, just, just like, just no matter where you are, you're surrounded by microbes. Pretty much everywhere from the atmosphere all the way down to the, uh, below the, the seafloor. We see them in the most unusual, most unlifelike places. We find them everywhere. 
Really? All right. Well, hang on. We're already on a tangent. What's an example yeah. of like a really unusual place where I might find a microbe? Um, so deep within the, the Earth's uh, crust, um, in space, um, in clouds, we see them all sorts of places where you wouldn't expect necessarily to see light. How do, they get, how do they get in the Earth's crust? Oh, all sorts of geological processes and uh. time. And they, they um, they're, th- yeah, those guys are crazy. They don't um, require a whole lot. They grow really slowly. There aren't a ton of them, but they're there. <laughs> it's like the opposite okay. of my kids uh, <laughs> in every way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but so a lot of your work is within microbes in Lake Michigan and the, the food chain or food web and how they go. Right. So what's the basic of basics of the story there? Like uh, uh, how do microbes contribute to the, to the food chain or the food web? All right. Hold on. Sorry. <laughs> Food chain or food web? What am I supposed to say to not sound like an idiot? Uh, yeah, so we call it a food web because it's okay. all tied together in different ways. Things go in different directions, both directions. It's a lot more complicated than uh, just a chain a, from a one chain. to the next. Gotcha. Yeah. Food web. So how? Yes. Uh, so I'm guessing they serve as like the base of the food web or uh, the center of the food web? Kind of. So we think of um, the base, even on on land, we think of the base as things that photosynthesize, green plants, right? You don't have green plants growing in the Great Lakes, um, but you do have tiny, tiny green plants. So these phytoplankton, and they're the ones that fix um, carbon dioxide the same way that trees um, and leaves and and grass do, plants do. Um, So these are the organisms that kind of I think of as as the base of the food web. Um, and they're really important in all sorts of aquatic environments. And then they turn the carbon that comes from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere into carbon that's usable for other things. And the next thing that uses that carbon is um, bacteria. So bacteria that can use carbon that's produced by uh, photosynthetic microbes. And then that becomes available to lots of other things and then to the salmon and, and the, the big fish that everybody else is interested in. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the stuff you can see, I think being able it's to see it is a nice... megafauna. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I feel the need to take a moment to say I'm somewhere in the middle, like aquatic invertebrates, macro invertebrates. That's where I like to live. And I have the same issue where people are like, yeah, it's just fish food. <laughs> right. So macro invertebrates are, are invertebrates that you can see, but they still don't have a spine, right? Correct. Yeah, if you don't have a spine, we just don't care. I mean, actually, I'm from Louisiana, so I, there are many things with spines we like because we can eat them. Or yeah. many things without spines. Anyway, all right, good. So uh, so, so you're saying that really the whole dynamics of the food web um, are as a result of different microorganisms, both the phytoplankton, which I guess are plants or plant-like, and then, and then mm-hmm. the bacteria that eat those, and then on up the chain and things like that, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And they contribute a lot to the, the dynamics. Is that the same uh, like in other ecosystems as well? Ocean, saltwater, uh, you know, are they important across the board or is it something special about the Great Lakes? No, they're important in all aquatic environments, but they're so a couple of things are different between the Great Lakes and any other aquatic environment you might look at. One is the, the exact identity of those organisms. So which ones they are, there's a lot of similarities between those organisms, but they differ from system to system. And the other is the relative abundance and the roles that they play. So um, in the Great Lakes, so in Lake Michigan specifically, which is what I study a lot, 
um, we've seen these big changes happen um, over the course of the last decade or so when um, the muscles that have that feed on the phytoplankton have consumed so much of the phytoplankton that they actually don't grow in the abundance that they used to. And that is creates all sorts of crazy dynamics and changes in carbon um, use in the lake. So that's oh, really different from... Um, from say the open ocean or Lake Michigan is now now resembles the open ocean a lot more because it doesn't have as much carbon um, that's fixed by photosynthetic organisms as it used to. It used to be a lot more nutrient rich and now it's we call it oligotrophic, so low nutrient. What about light penetration too? Because you're saying that they're fixing um, energy from the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that the mussels have completely cleaned up the water column and the light can penetrate deeper, does that affect the community that's there or anything like that? Yeah, but so yes, they're still photosynthetic organisms and they, they can, so if you go into the open ocean, light can penetrate for a uh, hundreds of meters, right? Um, so they're still photosynthetic organisms, but they're not blooming the way they used to. So there's not this huge, um, big, birth of phytoplankton that used to happen every year annually. And so the the amount of photosynthesis that occurs is actually less. And that big um, phytoplankton bloom used to drive a lot of the carbon dynamics. And so it still happens, but on a lower like baseline scale than this big event that used to happen annually. Okay. So, um, and that's because just to be clear for folks who are listening, that's because of the invasive mussels that have spread throughout right. the, the area. Right. And so the water's much cleaner. Now I was speaking with a, a fish ecologist. I won't say who, um, but he, uh, he thinks that the lakes are too clean now as a result of this. And now I think this is probably why would you, I, I'm not going to ask you to characterize whether or not they're too clean, but but the, you're saying the dynamics have changed mm-hmm. uh, as a result. And so, without those big annual bursts, does that mean there's just less food of of, of uh, activities? I mean, there's less food available. Is that kind of yes, exactly. So that carbon that the phytoplankton can take from the atmosphere and bring into the lake feeds the next level of organisms, and so that carbon feeds the bacteria. Um, we call them heterotrophic is a uh, opposite kind of, of, of photosynthetic. They're the ones that eat carbon the way that we do each. We eat sugars, they eat sugars um, and all sorts of other forms of carbon. And so without that food, um, they, they don't have, they can't provide that to the rest of the um, food web within the lake. So it's shifted everything. Is there anything else that they can feed on or do they like, is there anything else say something that um, happens to be in the lake because of large humans who have put it there? Um, Not, not saying we should put it out there, but is there anything else that they can sort of switch to? Definitely. Yeah. So that's, that's actually um, one aspect of our project that we've been working on for the last couple of years is looking at how they have changed to using, using carbon that's produced by phytoplankton. So, carbon that's produced in place versus carbon that comes in from outside. And that car- there's lots of carbon that comes in also from um, other sources like rivers that all the tributaries that feed into the lake. Um, wastewater treatment. I have a lot of uh, a big project looking at wastewater treatment plants and their impact on the lake. And so there's all sorts of sources of carbon inputs that come from outside the lake. And it used to be that the carbon that was produced inside the lake was a 
a more important source of carbon for the lake food web. And now it seems like carbon that's coming in from outside plays a bigger role. So like, uh, so now they're getting, we'll call it factory carbon as opposed to the organic local homegrown carbon that they used to use. Right, right. Is there a difference with this factory carbon, um, you know, sort of biologically or uh, uh, is it the same kind of stuff and all's well that ends well? No, it's different stuff. It's um, there, And there are some organisms that we think of as generalists, microorganisms, microbes that can use any sort of carbon. It doesn't matter what the form is. And there's some organisms that are specialists. So they're real pros at processing the form of carbon that's produced by photosynthetic bacteria, uh, photosynthetic organisms, um, bacteria and algae and um, other uh, uh, zooplankton. Um, and there's... Uh, there's carbon that there's some microbes that can only um, process a certain kind. So, yeah. So we're looking at the shifts in those, like which organisms are, um, are become how the populations of bacteria are changing in response to the change in carbon. Gotcha. So the structure of the whole ecosystem is changing. The communities of bacteria will change over time because of uh, just competitive advantage of different types of bacteria. Yeah, so some are changing and some are staying the same. Some There's some bacteria that are like, hey, we don't care. <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. <laughs> we'll right. use that form of carbon. Um, but it, it changes. And, and um, there's also a gradient. So stuff that's coming in from, uh, from outside the lake, the ones that are closer to the, to the like near shore organisms, ones that are closer to that input are going to use the stuff that's really easy to use, the really delicious carbon. <laughs> They're going to eat that all first. And so as it moves offshore, the ones that are getting the rest tend to be the ones that are they're getting the dregs, <laughs> whatever's left, or it may be harder to metabolize. It may be more complex organic matter. Sure. So I'm, I'm seeing two things, two sort of themes based on what we're talking about in terms of, I guess I'll call it changing inputs uh, into the microbiome. And boy, that may be wrong, um, but we'll, we'll run with it and you'll tell me if it's wrong. Uh, and, and so it, the carbon that used to be, you know, and these are because of human actions, right? And so the invasive species are coming, specifically the mussels, and are, are cleaning up the water dramatically, uh, resulting in, you know, changes in uh, terms of how photosynthesis works and how much light's available or whatever. But then at the same time, there are the extra inputs coming in in the forms of various types of pollution, right? Uh, and, and so that's... Uh, changing, you know, to some extent, the structure of what bacteria are there um, or what they're feeding on. And so all of this is relatively recent in terms of ecological timescales, right? This is the last, Mm -hmm. I don't know, 50 years. Um, What happens, spin this forward for us. So in maybe not ecological time, because in ecological time, we're all dead. But (laughs) but like in in another uh, 30, like how does this change over time if these two uh, sort of factors, the cleaner water because of invasive species with all of the polluting inputs, like what, what happens long term with that? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think um, microbes, one thing that we know for sure is that microbes are really adaptable. They, they, um, they're not going to care for the most part, like overall, the entire community, they're not going to care. And so the the total community, I mean, we're still going to have lots of bacteria, their roles may shift slightly. And, and one thing that I do want to comment on what you said is that it's important to think that it's not all pollution that's coming in, like some of it is like, just stuff from rivers, like a very like humic 
material, stuff from leaves and trees, like all that stuff that washes off and that's rich in carbon, right? So, um, so I think the, there's going to be, um, overall shifts in the composition, the total composition of the community, but they're still going to be doing, um, their jobs and processing, you know, making a living by processing carbon. So we can make, we can make t-shirts that say, Bacteria here, you bacteria don't care, or something yeah. like that. Like, <laughs> don't give a. Oh, is there a bacteria that rhymes with bleep? Though, anyway, all right. Um. <laughs> okay, well, okay. So while I while I make a bad joke and take over asking questions, um, so how do you actually collect these um, organisms? Like, what do you do, or what do your students do when you guys are out and trying to learn about what the community looks like? Yeah, that's a good question. So we. Um, they're really hard to see, right? Because they're teeny tiny. You can't see them with your eye by definition. That's what makes a microbe. So what we do is we collect them and we concentrate them and we do that on a filter. So filters, um, so this becomes really easy for aquatic bacteria, a little more complicated for um, bacteria that live in the sediment, which we also study. Um, so in the water, we'll filter water through a filter that has a point um uh, 0.2 micron size pores. And so that the average bacteria is about one micron. So they can't pass through the holes. The water does, and they all get stuck on the filter. And from that filter, we can um, extract nucleic acid. So we can look at their DNA, their RNA, and that's what tells us who they are. And that's what tells us what they're doing. So um, it's not unlike the current um, test for the coronavirus. Um, they'll take a swab and we actually, we use a lot of the same techniques. Um, they'll take a swab and look for the, the coronavirus is an RNA virus. So they look for the RNA and identify it based on its nucleic acid signature. And so that's what we're doing with these great lakes bacteria, um, is looking at their nucleic acid signature to figure out who they are and what kind of things they might be able to do. Oh, that's so relieving. I envisioned graduate students like it with microscopes and I felt so bad for them. Uh, like having to identify these little, okay. Go ahead, Carolyn. So a micron, um, I was just going to say uh, a micron is about the width of a penny or so, right? Like roughly. The thickness you mean or? Yeah, the thickness. Yeah, my bad. Yeah. Not width. Yeah, maybe um, a little less even. Yeah, maybe like a tenth of that. And then you're talking about filters that are like a fraction of that, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. for Carolyn, one micrometer is 0. 0.00000001 kilometers. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. So really small filters. And then you, you basically, you filter them out and you run them into the magical DNA machine, RNA machine, I guess. And it tells DNA. you like... DNA machine and does yeah. it, it gives you like the different percentages of different types or what, or I guess you have to infer that uh, using statistical analysis or whatever. Well, so what happens is there's um, to, to just to identify bacteria, there's happens to be one gene that's really, really highly conserved. So, Actually, every organism, every form of life on Earth has this gene, has a variation of this gene, um, but it's and it's integral to just life to making proteins. Hmm. So um, every bacteria has has this. And it's so highly conserved in bacteria that any small change within the sequence of that gene means that it's um, dis distinct from another organism. So we look at that specific gene, and we compare them to each other. 
so when you say conserved, you mean it, it's like consistent across mm-hmm. uh, organisms, but you can, it's almost like a fingerprint. It's like exactly this subtle, like this slight variation means mm-hmm. that it's this species versus that species or whatever. Right, right. <sighs> Yeah, species is a tough one for, for oh, bacteria, sorry. but <laughs> we won't go there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so so it, it means that they're distinct organisms. If it, so, we go by this rule of thumb: if if um, if organisms have this gene and it's at least ninety seven percent similar um, to between the, them, we say that they're probably. Uh, not different organisms. So if it's 97, 98, 99, 100% similar, we say they're probably either the same organism or really, really close relatives. But if it's less than 97%, we say it's probably a different organism. And we compare it to a database that has tons of these sequences. And so we map these back to the database and we say, oh, this one is 99% similar to this one. So they're probably that one goes here and that one goes here and we categorize them kind of like, you know, the first biologist categorized any sorts of life, but we do this at a molecular level. Holy moly. And there's 97% again, that's the magic number. A lot of my research has been on um, climate science consensus and uh, that 97% number crops up periodically. Hmm. Uh, So it's It's totally arbitrary. No, it's meaningful in a deep way that uh, you just haven't yet crocked. So open your mind, Rachel, and you'll see it. Uh, Anyway, great. So you also do research on, um, I was looking at your webpage, and you also do some research on things like antibiotics. What is that? Can you give us like a high level overview of your work on antibiotics and microorganisms? Sure. So most of the work I've done has been specifically related to antibiotic resistance. And in the context of the Great Lakes, we've done a good bit of work looking at um, how organisms that are introduced into the lake from wastewater treatment plants. So there's, you know, if you look at Lake Michigan, there's about 100 wastewater treatment plants that discharge their treated effluent into Lake Michigan. And within that, that treat, so that treated effluent, it's clean. They've removed nitrogen, they've a lot of nitrogen, they've removed um, pathogens, they've, they've treated it. um, But it still has some organisms. And some of those organisms are viable. And some organisms have uh, genes that encode things like antibiotic resistance, but it also some of that effluent also has chemicals um, that aren't removed through any wastewater treatment process. And some of that is is antibiotic. So, um, We've done some work looking at how uh, the introduction of both those chemicals and those organisms into the lake influences um, the microbial communities within the lake. And we've looked for antibiotic resistance genes and organisms that are really similar to those found in wastewater. Uh, And we find this natural gradient, sort of, maybe not natural, but we find this gradient um, that close to the wastewater treatment plant, we can find a signature of these organisms and these processes in the sediment. And as you go farther out into the middle of the lake, you see fewer and fewer of those. And that's because they're being exposed to the drugs that are passing through the wastewater treatment plant. And they're just sort of like, because they they're really adaptable. They just sort of figure it out. Is that? It's a combination of that and uh, the exposure to the, um, to the chemicals themselves and also just having those genes. So typically antibiotic resistance genes aren't encoded within a microbe's 
genome, they're on these mobile elements that can move around really easily. And that's why antibiotic resistance is such a problem because it spreads, they can exchange genes really quickly with each other. And so we see a little bit of of the same organisms with the the antibiotic resistance genes, but then we see the same genes moving into other organisms and they just get that by sharing. But there's also natural antibiotics antimicrobials. So organisms will produce antibiotics as a way to compete with their neighbors, as a way to to communicate with their neighbors in low doses. Um, They're not actually meant to kill each other. They're a form of communication. And so there's this whole interplay of natural antimicrobial communication and cooperation and competition and the input from people and how that, that kind of influences whole community structure. One thing I've heard a lot today is about how adaptable all the microbes are and things like that and how, you know, there's all these different things, but they're adapting to the antibiotics or to the whatever. So uh, does that mean that thinking bigger with the, all I care about is the salmon. I'm a, (laughs) not really, I've never even seen a salmon. Um, But, but, uh, but. So if I, as a person, like if I, if the grocery store doesn't have any corn right now, the grocery store doesn't have anything, right? So I can eat maybe beans and the overall effect is that, you know, there's certain effects, but not that big of an effect. Uh, or maybe I have pizza next week or whatever. And like, as long as I'm substituting out different food sources, my overall life isn't changing that much, right? So with all these changes that are happening or not happening on the bacterial level, are the, the out on the food web, uh, is that, um, not, you know, is it, are the effects not that great at this point because they're just substituting where they're getting their carbon from similar, broadly analogous, I guess, to how I might buy different groceries depending on what's in stock? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, that could very well be. We don't really know. Um, and it kind of depends on how many of those organisms are super adaptable and how many that are important for other processes. So their their main job is to eat carbon and make carbon available in other forms for other organisms. But there's also organisms, microbes that make vitamins that certain other organisms can't live without or so it, it kind of depends on on which ones are affected and um that could affect other so yeah. my really broad conclusion is it's way too broad uh, there's a lot of unknowns there uh, are a lot yeah. of unknowns but i think the analogy is really good my uh, my postdoc likes to use this um analogy of um people who live in a a vacation town um, where in the winter they will shovel snow and you'll never, never see them running an ice cream stand in the summer. They run the ice cream stand. You never see them shoveling snow, but it doesn't mean that they don't do It's the same person doing two very different jobs, depending on the current situation and the what's going on. You've convinced me. I was already convinced, but microbes are extraordinarily important in the Great Lakes. Um, But if there was one fact about microorganisms in the lakes that you wish people knew, what would it be? That they're not all bad. I think... I think mostly people are are getting that now. Um, Microbes get a very bad reputation, often deservingly so. I mean, they've put us all in our houses right now. Um, But... Um, they, they are so important to running, um, the, the ecosystem and they're so essential to all the life, um, within the lakes that without them, it would be totally different. Um, and I don't think life would be as it, 
as it is. And we could, I think, just talk about this for hours. But uh, really, the reason we asked you here is to ask about sandwiches. So we're going to do that <laughs> instead. So you live in Chicago, great Eaton City, right? Um, or at least in the Chicago suburbs. But I have a question for you. And that is uh, this. If you could choose to have either a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one of those two would you choose? You can only choose one. See, I, I feel like when life is normal and I'm going into work, I make that choice on a regular basis because on my way to UIC walking from the L, um, I pass a really good donut shop and I also pass a sandwich shop. And sometimes I decide and I often um, get a donut. They know me there. There we go. That's what economists call a, re- a revealed preference. I, I tell them... <laughs> I tell them there's worse places to to be a regular than a donut shop, but I, I do like my donuts. <laughs> so now you got to spill the beans on what donut shop next time I'm in Chicago should I go to? Don't have to be your specific one, but you know, like is this a chain or a specific place I need to go? Um, I think it's uh, I, I think it's what there's only one or two. It's called Do Right Do Right Donuts. It's right by the Morgan L Green Line. Station and done, (laughs) and they have they have three vegan donut options. So I'm vegan, and that makes oh, there we go. So what what about a donut is not vegan normally? Yeast, probably eggs. Oh, they have eggs. Probably. Yep. Yeah, they have eggs. I was like, but yeast is cool for vegans. You eat. Oh yeah. So you eat microorganisms. <laughs> Another forty-five minute conversation. Oh, that got complicated. I well, you know what? We'll just invite you back on uh, to talk about that at another point. Um, <laughs> for now, is there a place? Uh, is there a place where people can go to if they want to learn more about your work, like a website or a social media feed or something like that? Sure, Paretsky.lab.uic.edu is my website. There we go. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes um, and uh, to some other key terms as well. And you can see those show notes if you go to www.teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com. Uh, or if you're listening to this on your phone, just look down at your phone and the show notes are there probably. And if they aren't, um, uh, get a email, email steward <laughs> or get a different podcast thing. Uh, great. Well, Dr. Rachel Paretsky, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us about the Great Lakes. Thanks for having me. Well, that was really cool, Carolyn. I didn't know a lot about microbes. I mean, I still don't know a lot, I guess, but I know more than I did. And that's awesome. Yeah, it was really great and really interesting to talk about the um, potentially more positive sides of microbes. Yeah. Microbes feed us indirectly. I think that's much better than thinking about the ways in which they have me currently trapped inside with my kids while I try to work, etc. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Is there anything specific you learned today that uh, you would like to share? So I think the thing that um, struck me the most was that the microbes are actually using antibiotic signals to talk to each other in low doses. Like when she said they're using antibiotics to communicate with each other. I thought, so yeah. how, hey, bud, how's it going? Have this thing that's going to hurt you, you know? Like that, but yeah, so <laughs> yeah. that was really interesting. I agree. That is fascinating. And uh, for me, I think the most important thing that I learned in all honesty is that uh, microbes are really adaptable. And uh, maybe that means that some sort of human caused uh, stress is okay, or maybe it doesn't. We don't know. Uh, but there's a whole lot of questions to answer. Um, and I think that that's uh, good 
if it uh, were me giving the talk, I would then end that with, which is why you need to fund me to do more research. <laughs> um, but in this case, we need to fund Rachel and people like her to do more research to try to answer those questions. Right. And it's kind of nice to have a little bit of hope that, you know, there's something that will adapt and try to help keep supporting things in the yeah. way that we're used to. So. Yeah, I agree. It's a different form of resilience and not one that I think about a lot, uh, but but maybe I should. Cool. Well, uh, Carolyn, where can people go more to find out about our program? Since you're here, I'll make you remember the social media stuff. Yes, we're on Twitter and Facebook, Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. Um, you can also visit our website, iiscgrant.org. And when they say C, they mean S-E-A, not the letter C. There it is. Uh, and you can follow the show at uh, Teach Great Lakes on Twitter. Tweet at us. I should do more of that kind of stuff, but I don't. Um, maybe next time. Uh, and in the meantime, everybody take care. Hope says to wash your hands. And uh, thanks for learning about the Great Lakes. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do